Welcome, everybody. So glad to be back with you this morning. A bunch of years ago, when my kids were young, we, I think my dad paid for this. He had retired and he had uh, gotten a little bit of money and he wanted to take the whole family on a, a Disney vacation. And um, we, uh, it, the worst part was, I mean, all of his grandchildren, all of his kids, it was a big tab and he broke his foot right before we left. And so we all went and dad stayed home. So that was a bummer. If you think of my dad, you can shoot him a card and say, sorry about that foot issue. But we were out on a cruise ship um, thinking about my dad over a Mai Tai. And uh, we, uh, we had four kids, four young kids. And uh, we decided we wanted to go in the hot tub. So what we did is uh, we did what everybody on the pool hates when it happens. We went and dropped all four of our kids into the hot tub. Nothing frees up a hot tub like dropping four of your kids into it. And so the next thing you know, it was just the Eisman family, and we had a, a few moments to ourselves in the hot tub that everybody had fleed from. And so instead of fighting for deck chairs, it was just us. And I was enjoying a moment of peace. And, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, this is a true story, out of nowhere comes this entire film crew. They burst onto the scene. They had a couple of cameras, director, producer. They come running up to our hot tub, and they start filming. And my first thought was exactly what you would think it would be. These darn paparazzi, they've gotten me again. Can't a pastor go anywhere? But it turned out that it wasn't me that they were looking for because moments later came the stars of the show. This family came up the stairs and joined us in our hot tub. I mean, the nerve, my hot tub. The reason for the lights and the camera was that this family was on a vacation that was being paid for by ABC because their home was being worked on by Ty Pennington. Anybody remember Ty Pennington? You date yourself a little bit already, right? But their house was getting an extreme uh, home makeover. And this, if you remember the show, they'd send the family on a vacation, then they'd do a live cut, supposed live cut, to the family on vacation. And that was where we were. We were in the hot tub with the family on vacation. Their house was being remodeled. Now, if you're wondering, yes, we did wind up watching the show, um, and no, we did not get on TV. Um, the hot tub, our end of the hot tub, wound up on the edit room floor. Can you imagine how hurtful? I was reminded of that story this week when I saw a headline which caught my attention, came through in my newsfeed. Quote, from home makeover to horror story, home makeover recipient shares nightmare experience after the show, everything was stuck together with staples. And it was just a, a, this guy saying, yeah, it looked great. And when they were gone, the whole thing, like, literally just fell apart. The house needed remodeling. For one reason or another, it wasn't working for that family. Something or things that happened in their lives. And so the home was no longer as homely as it used to be. It was, it was broken. It was going to need some repairing. Some remodeling was suddenly necessary. But it turned out that all of the work that got put into the remodel didn't change anything. In fact, it... It didn't work. Looked a little bit better, but on the inside, it was no different. Today, my beautiful friends, we embark on a new series based on that same concept, the concept of remodeling, but, but not for home makeovers or home renews. Instead, it's for something much more important than a home or a house. And you know we just got done with a series on how important homes are. But I would tell you that I think that what we're going to be looking at remodeling and making changes in is the most important thing in our lives. Christian or not, follower of Jesus or not, we're going to look at renewing, redoing our relationships. 
We're not going to try to staple things over in these coming weeks so they look good. We're going to remodel, fix, renovate, renew, refresh, repurpose the most important thing in our lives, our relationships. Now, while we're talking about uh, our relationships and remodeling, why would we do that? Well, Paul, some of you know, was a first century persecutor of the church of Jesus as the church took form. And after meeting the resurrected Jesus, he, he came to believe that Jesus was exactly who he said he was, the way, the truth, and the life, that nobody came to the Father except through him. And Paul was so radically transformed, he began to plant churches all around the, the early ancient world. And then what, what he would do is he would often write back to these churches. First, he would talk to them about spiritual things. Then he would talk to them about practical things. Here's what he wrote to the church in Philippi. He said, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus. Put another way, Paul thought it was important enough to write these early churches about their relationships, and he did this over and over. You'll see in the coming weeks. In your relationships one another, with one another, model them after Jesus. Jesus is the model for, for how we should be in relationship with others. It's his mindset, his attitude. It's his relationships. The goal is to make ours resemble his. In the coming weeks, what we're going to be working on, I'm going to tell you right up front, because I spend a lot of time every week working on relationships. This series comes with a warning label on it. It will not be easy. Um, you know that. You have relationships, right? It won't be natural. Sometimes it won't even be fun. I'll try to make it fun. But I think what you're going to see in the coming weeks is that we need to remodel our relationships because almost none of our relationships are actually modeled after Jesus's. We have built almost all of our relational models off of other models. Now, some of them might be okay. Many of them, I would argue, suffer from one very common foundational flaw. We're going to look at that flaw next week. But again, as a guy who spends most of his week helping people in relationships, I have to tell you, many of the models are not good. In fact, sometimes they're just downright awful. But I would tell you that it doesn't matter how good the model was, almost none of the models are the Jesus model. Now, I want you to think about this, right, so you get a sense for what I'm talking about. Maybe nobody's ever challenged you on it. I want you to think about your relationships. Um, can I ask you a participatory moment? If you are married, would you raise your hand if you are married? Raise your hand, please. Wow. This is the wrong place to be a single person right now, right? Not a lot of people available in the room. If you are married, here's my question for you. Who taught you how to be married? Who taught you how to be a husband? Who taught you how to be a wife? How do you have any idea what the heck it is you're doing in the most foundational, important relationship in your life? Do you have any idea what you're doing? I can see some of your, your spouses are looking at you going, no, he has no idea what he's doing. It's very obvious. Right? I mean, where, what were your models? Let's be honest. What is your relationship modeled after? I do this all day. I can tell you right now, most of your relationships are modeled after your parents' relationship, what you saw growing up. And it doesn't matter what that was. If it was spectacular or horrible, it was normal to you. That was your normal. That was your model. And, and, and you walked into that relationship for the good or the bad of it, right? And, and your model was your mom and dad. Here's the problem. Guess who your spouse's model was? Not your mom and dad's. It was their mom and dad's. 
And what I would, 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 would conjecture is that almost none of our moms and dads, not their fault, just that nobody helps explain it, very few of them, very few of their relationships were modeled on Jesus-type relationships. And so your dad modeled what his parents taught him, your mom modeled what her parents taught him, and you start to begin to see how generational patterns get locked into families and relationships. How my parents related isn't how Joan's parents related, right? I, I know what I speak of. Um, and, and here's the interesting thing. For example, my parents were married for, for 16 years and wound up divorced. Um, and, and I was the oldest child in that relationship. And so I watched that relationship. And that was a very normal relationship to me. It was the only one I was aware of. My parents, would be no surprise, argued quite a bit. Joan's parents never argued. Um, and so we were married. This is a true story. We were married probably somewhere between 15 and 20 years. And one day we were having a what I would like to call a discussion. And... Um, she said to me, after these 15 or 18 years, all we ever do is fight. And I, with all sincerity, looked at her and said, I thought we had never had a fight. Because my idea of what a fight was, and Joan's idea of what a fight was, were radically different based on what our model of a fight was, what our model of a relationship was, right? And our kids are watching. Speaking of kids, how many of you have kids? Raise your hands if you have kids, please. Who taught you how to parent your kids? Do you have any idea what you're doing? If you think you do, that's because you haven't gotten to the teenage years yet. They will awaken you quickly to, I have no idea what the heck it is that I am doing. <laughs> I am here to tell you that uh, having gone through all of the stages now, parenting toddlers and children is exhausting, but a relative cakewalk to parenting teenagers or, or, and here's where we, a lot of us struggle, making the switch to parenting adult children. It's a completely different skill set. Almost unrelated to parenting young children in some ways. Anybody teach you how to do that? Like, how do you know what you're doing? Why do, why do you think you do? And yet, yet, right, these relationships are the most important things in the world. In fact, what I'm doing is going to echo generationally, right? There is nothing in our mental, physical, emotional, or spiritual lives more important than relationships. More important than anything else, they determine the quality and the direction of your life. I will show you that in a minute beyond a reasonable doubt. And yet at the end of the day, here's what's so fascinating about this. Everybody knows this, right? But none of us know what we're doing. This is why we have to remodel our relationship. Because they become, over time, dysfunctional or harmful or hurtful, a lot of times cold. We become uh, mortgage partners with one another, rather dead, sometimes even, even hateful. And it's because we don't know what we're doing. We, 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 we followed the wrong instructions. We, we were looking at the wrong model. Next week, we're going to get into the common flaw 
that's kind of foundational in almost all of our relationships. And from that foundation, then, we're going to begin to remodel the relationships we're in. But before we go there, today what I want to do is I want to convince you of why you should invest really deeply into this series, how important these coming weeks are going to be for you and your family, your future, your happiness, and for your God. In fact, let's start there. Point one. The quality and condition of your relationships matters to God a lot. Now, many of you in this room are here because you believe Jesus is who he said he is. You are a follower of his. And so I know, you know, amongst, amongst Bible-believing Christians, you might be going, John, I think you might be spiritualizing this up a little bit. We're going to spend weeks working on relationships in church, right? I mean, wh wh why would we do all that? Well, I could be up here all day giving you the reasons for why we should re spend time remodeling relationships in church. But I'll give you a couple quick ones so we can move on. Here's what Jesus says about relationships. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, there is the modeling again. Anybody see that? Jesus didn't say, here's the model, but you can see it. As I have loved you, there's the model. How do we relate to one another? How do we love one another like he did? As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then he gives one of several reasons for why Jesus cares about the condition of our relationships. Why does Jesus care about the condition of my relationships? Because by them, by the way we relate to one another, everyone will know you're my disciple if you love one another. Super important. Worthy of reflecting on for those of us that would say we're followers of Jesus. Here's just an eye where you need to be honest about this, okay? Because I know wonderful people that love God, and, and they would wrestle with this question I'm about to ask. And I want you to, to wrestle with it too. If people looked at the quality and the condition of your relationships with your spouse, with your kids, with your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, if somebody came and just that's all they had to go on, that's it, would they look and go, oh, yep, no doubt about it. That dude, that chick, oh, man, they are followers of Jesus. How can you tell? Just look at their relationships. In fact, for followers of Jesus, this is crazy, but, but get this, okay? Our relationships, the quality and condition of them, the way we relate one to another, this, again, this is, this is crazy. This is God's plan for how those that are far from God are supposed to understand how God loves them. Paul, right, he had another word for how crazy this is. He called it a mystery when describing the highest form of human relationship, the, the closest intimacy in human, in human relationships, a marriage. Here's what Paul said. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. The best way the mystery, friends, listen to this, the best way the mystery of the love of God expressed to the world in Jesus is revealed to the world is by the way, the quality, the condition of our marriages. The way you love your husband, the way you love your wife, it really, really matters because that is the plan for how people are to understand how God loves the world. Have you ever thought about that? And I mean, forget the whole world for now. How about just your home, right? Because you read that and you start to reflect on it and then you have to begin to wonder, why is it we wonder that so many of our kids walk away from faith? I mean, I don't understand it, John. We raised them the right way. We took them to church, youth group, 
Got him dedicated as a child. I mean, I just don't get it, John. We went on missions trips. We had family devotions all the time. Veggie Tales was the soundtrack of their youth, right? We taught them the scriptures. We sang the hymns. We taught them the tithe. They even had Bible man sheets on their bed. I don't understand what could have happened. I can't figure out for the life of me why my children have no interest in God. A question which brings fresh understanding to this contemporary rendering of 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but I don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all of his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, and I don't live love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, no matter what I believe, and no matter what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Jesus has a singular new command. And do you know what it has to do with? Our relationships. Paul would go on to call it the law of God. Love one, or excuse me, the law of Christ. Love God, love one another. Not just that, though, not just that. The condition, the quality of our relationships, it's this vehicle through which the world will know who Jesus is. Our relationship with one another is not just the vehicle, it is actually the um, authentication of who Jesus is. It validates or invalidates him to the world, to those you love. I didn't say that. Jesus said it in his final prayer, a prayer for our relationships, where we would be in unity with one another. Jesus says that through these relationships, quote, then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. How will the world know Jesus is who he said he is? How will the world know that God loves them? Through the quality and the condition of our relationships. Do you see how important this is? Why would we talk about relationships in a church? How could we not? Which, come on now, I mean, if, if you're a Christian, you've been around long enough, right? This is pretty convicting, right? I mean, my kids are going to understand how God loves them by the way I love Joan. Your kids will understand how God, who God is, that Jesus is who he said he is by the way you love your husband. The world to be convinced that Jesus is who he said he is and that God loves them by the way you and I love each other and the way we love our neighbors. Now, if I were advising God on the plan, the rescue plan for humanity, I would tell him this is a bad plan. He should come up with another one. Now, I've learned at this point in my life that God's plans are usually better than mine, so I think there's a reason that he created it the way it is. But here's what's even more troubling, and we know this, right? If that's true, why is it sometimes that Christians, those, those of us who carry the name of Jesus, we're not exactly known for having great relationships, are we? Oh, those Christians, they're so loving. Like, it's not really a moniker people hang on us. It's almost like being people of faith gives us just one more thing to disagree about or fight over with others and with those we love. Just one more thing that will, will cause us to separate from our, our family and our friends. Church gossip, church fights, church splits. Forget loving people outside of the walls. We struggle to love those inside of the walls. 
But it's so important. And again, I, I, I want you to think it through. Who taught you? Who, who taught you? If it's that important, I mean, shouldn't we be, be wondering, like, how do I even know how to be somebody's friend? I mean, think about it, right? We, we will spend decades preparing for college. We'll spend tens of thousands of dollars on education and job training. We will build our resumes. We will pile up money for retirement. We'll pay for personal trainers for our kids, money managers for our finance. But almost none of us in our entire lives will spend an hour or a nickel on learning how to be a good spouse or friend or neighbor. Isn't that weird? It's almost like we've all been collectively duped. Which leads to the second reason that I think that we need to talk about this church in church. The first is that our relationships are God's primary evangelism vehicle. They're the model that people can see and feel and touch and understand. To hand somebody a Bible and go, here, let this convince you, is not as powerful as saying, watch the way I love you. But the second, though, is even more personal, and it's this. God really loves you. Each and every one of you, he knows the hairs on your head, and he knows the impact and the power of relationships on your life. He created you. He knows your purpose. He created you on purpose, for a purpose. He knows how you were made to function, and you were made to function in relationship. Many of you know this story, right? Genesis, first book of the Bible, book of origins written. This is what's so amazing about this book. It was written 3,500 years ago. Its author, historically assumed to be Moses, he recounts the story of creation. And, and you know this. In, in, in each new period of creation, God stands back, takes a look at what he's done, and he says out loud, audibly, that's good. Until he gets to the ultimate creation. Man, made in the image of God. You and I, human beings. And with the addition of man to creation, human beings into that garden, he stands back and he goes, now that... That's very good. And think about the rhythm of creation. Every day ends the same as the one before. Good, 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 very good. Those are the adjectives of creation, which is why when God gets to, to Genesis 2, uh, what he says there is so startling. Because what's going on is so good and very good. What's happening in Genesis 2, if you want to use the Hebrew language, it's called shalom. There is in this creation utter peace and wholeness and goodness. Everything working the way it was designed to work in harmony and unity. And God looks at that moment and God sees only one thing. And it's not good. I'll let him tell you what it is. It is not good, the Lord God said. For the man to be alone. Did you ever notice that before? The world hadn't fallen yet. There is no sin in the garden before pride and death enter the world. Do you know there was one thing wrong in all of the, the, the perfect creation? And it was for man to be alone. It was not good. Now, you know... Being a pastor, I've done the work on this. I've studied the meaning of this in the original Hebrew. I've taken a look at the first century Greek translations, and to the best of my ability, here's what God meant when he said it wasn't good for man to be alone. He meant it was bad for man to be alone. Like bad. Not good. Like, seriously, this is not good. This is bad. It's a problem. 
Theologically, the answer of why it's bad is simple. We'll start with the theological reason. God looks at this and goes, mm, that's bad. Why? Well, because the scriptures say you were made in, the, in Latin, the Imago Dei, the image of God. And God is a God of and in constant community. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Read an interesting story this week. The Greek word periochoresis, periochoresis was a term that was used to describe a typical Greek wedding dance. In the dance, there are not two dancers, there are at least three. And, and they start to go in circles, weaving in and out in this wonderful motion pattern. And they go faster and faster and faster. However, all the while, they're staying in perfect rhythm and synchronization with each other. Eventually, they'd be going so fast, so quickly, yet effortlessly, it would become a blur to those who watched. Even if a part of a larger dance, they maintained, though, their individual identities intact and unchanged. And so the theologians in the early church would watch this, and they'd observe that dance. And knowing the sense of the verb it came from, they introduced this term. Periochoresis to describe the reality of the Trinity. God himself set in a harmonious relationship in which there is mutual giving and receiving. Periochoresis, it is the dance of God, the dance of love. The Trinity in this eternal dance of Father, Son, Spirit, sharing mutual affection and love and honor and happiness and joy and respect, all living in an eternal relationship of self-giving. In this dance, the three divine persons of the one God have loved one another. They've been in relationship with one another for all of eternity. They also deeply and intimately know one another. There's no fear and no shame, no insecurity in their knowledge of one another. They can trust one another as they move. Through this never-ending dance of the divine persons, they exist so intimately with one another and for one another and in one another, they actually wind up constituting this single, unique, and complete unity by themselves. And in enjoying this dance for all of eternity, imagine enjoying this dance for all of eternity. God looks down and he sees man, and it wasn't a long, a long thought. It, it wasn't, he didn't have to jump to too big a, to a conclusion to look at man in that garden and go, ah, that's not good. Do you know what you're missing out on? Which helps to to make Jesus' final prayer so much more passionate and understandable. He said, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who believe in me through their message. This is all of us through the disciples' message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Don't you understand, before Jesus left, he re-invited you to dance. You've been invited to the dance. The original invitation came out some 3,500 years ago, and here's what we know. All of these years later, it sounds kind of funny to say this, but it turns out what God said, you know, it's not good for him to be alone. Uh, it turns out he was right. It's not good. Who would have known? The studies on this are actually astounding. Uh, I went down a deep rabbit hole on this stuff this week. Do you know that if you have close relationships, you are, we'll start with something simple, you're less likely to have a cold. If you have strong friendships, you will recover from surgery more quickly. Did you know that if you have strong relationships, you, um, if you have close relationships, you are actually two to five times less likely to have a major health challenge in your life? A study at a BYU actually found this. If you have deep and close relationships, you will live longer than other people. 
Not only that, not having close, close relationships is actually equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's not good. Indeed, it's true. It's bad to be alone. You were made to dance. And so next week, we're going to begin the rehab work. We're going to learn how to dance again. But before we end today, I want to warn you about, because the relationships are so powerful, I want to warn you about them. Because they were created for your good, to enjoy that kind of intimacy. They were meant for good. They had power for good. I tell you, there's nothing more powerful in your life. In fact, you shouldn't believe me. I, I read this week a Harvard professor studied the power of relationships. His conclusion was that your friends account for 90% of your failure or successes in life. But because in this fallen world, the things that God creates for our good are often counterfeited and used for evil. Nothing is a more powerful force in our lives for good than our relationships. And friends, nothing is a more powerful force in our lives for bad than our relationships. So before we begin next week to learn how to dance, I'm going to end this week with a warning. You got to be really careful who you choose to dance with. Here's a simple question for you as you think back over your life. Is there anybody that you just wish you had never met? Oh, I wish I had never run into her. <laughs> no need to bring up her name. I mean, think about it, right? Maybe, maybe you're like, all right, let's not talk about me. How about your kids? Anybody in your, kid, you, anybody in your kid's life? You go, oh, I wish my son had never run into her. I wish my daughter had never met him. S spouses, there's husbands and wives in the room right now. I know, because I do this all week, there are people in your spouse's life that you wish they had never met. And why do you wish that? Because you tasted the power of what relationships can do. Right? Isn't it true if you look back over your life, your greatest regret is somehow connected to someone else? No one, right? No one has this huge regret and looks at the circumstance of it and says, nope, it was just me. I was by myself, uninfluenced by anyone. Almost all of us would look back and go, mm, yeah, it's tied to... This is the important part, right? The people that were part of that regret... Almost none of them at the time were your enemies, were they? At the time, they were pretty close. They were inner circle people. They were friends. You got to watch out who you dance with. And look, I know you hear this message and you're like, ah, oh, I wish my teen had been here to hear this. Don't worry, Mike's here and he's taking notes. You can, you can force him to watch it online tonight. They won't be interested. <laughs> But today, moms, dads, husbands, wives, single men, single women, this is not about them being careful about who they dance with. This is a truth that you need to start to apply or maybe reapply to you. The danger does not go away once you get a high school diploma. I don't spend a ton of time counseling teens. Mike does that. But I spend a ton of time counseling adults. At more, and I would tell you, more than half of the time, a question always comes up and, and so this might scare you off from coming to see me. But this is the question. Why did you get in that relationship? I mean, if he's that bad or she's that crazy or they're just that nuts, what were you doing with them? How did you let yourself get so close, 
so intimate. Why did you begin to dance with them in the first place? I mean, how many houses wouldn't need to be remodeled if they were built right to begin with, right? It's the same thing with our relationships. And now, here's where this can get screwed up, okay? And I want you to hear this. This is not about withdrawing from the world, judging the world and withdrawing the world. Jesus himself said that he didn't come to judge. We're not here, I'm not here, and you know this about me. I am not big. We are not going to go out in the woods and live by ourselves so we don't get influenced by others. We're not going to set up a compound here so only the right people can get in. I mean, if you know me, my passion is Luke 15, right? My passion is for the community, people beyond the walls of this church. This is not about that. This is about picking your dance partner right. This is about who you bring into the closest proximity of your heart and your soul and your mind and your days. And you do it not because you're picky about it, not because you're judging anybody else, because you're judging yourself. You know your own heart. You know your goals. You know where you want to go. You know where the Lord is calling. You know, you know who you want to be. And therefore, it's about you. Think about this, okay? For God so loved the entire world. But Jesus had boundaries. Did you know that? Jesus had levels of friends, those who were close and those who were closer. He was the friend of sinners, tax collectors. Prostitutes loved him. He ate with the, the lowest of the low. But there were only 72 men he sent out to be his representatives. And then there were only 12 disciples who he formed in his ways. And then there were three of those disciples, Peter, James, and John, that he took to pray with him the night before he was crucified. In your relationships with one another, you should have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Proximity in our relationships matters. You have to watch who you're bringing close. This is why there are square dances, row dances, and slow dances. And it's a proximity issue. You, you pick your partners wisely. Who you spend your time with, who you interact with the most, you are granting them. A lot of us just move to whoever will accept us. Well, they like me, so I'm just going to spend all my time with them. But you have to understand, you are, by giving your days and hours to them, you are giving them huge influence, huge powers in your life. You can't help it. You will start to look like them. Now, we know this, right? Most of us see it played out with our dogs. We have calendars dedicated to this idea, don't we? Have you seen these pictures of how, you know, you hang around with your dog long enough, right? Here's, here's picture one. You got Fabio here. Look at this. It's true. It's not just a guy thing, though, right? Ladies, it impacts you, too. Check this one out. Next thing you know, your dog is influencing your, your, your personal hair choice. And then being a man of the cloth myself, this is my personal one of uh, how we influence each other. <laughs> that's me and my dog, Moose. And that's funny, right? It's farcical. We go to the, the mall at Christmas time and the calendars are there. I don't think you actually begin to start looking like your dog because you spend a lot of time with them. I do begin. I do believe that you begin to look like your dance partners, though. That inner circle that you've allowed in. In fact, I don't just believe it. It's scientifically proven 
neuroscientist Warren Cerf, he set out to study how people make choices. This is interesting. He didn't even set out to study relationships. He set out to understand how people make choices in their lives, understanding, and you, you know this, that our lives wind up just being comprised mostly of the sum total of our choices. And in studying choices, what he began to realize was the power in, of relationships in our choices. And this is where it gets really wild. It's not just a behavioral thing. It's not like we just start behaving like those that we're, we're spending time with. It's actually a neurological thing. Our brains actually changed based on our friends. Our brain waves, due to proximity, that's what they've discovered in relationships, began to realign one to another for the good and the bad of it. Here's what he wrote. The more we study engagement, we see time and time again that just being next to certain people actually aligns your brains with them, he said. This means the people you hang out with actually have an impact on your engagement with reality beyond what you can explain. And one of the effects is you become alike, which led him to a pretty cool conclusion, one that if you're a Christian this morning or not, Jesus follower or not, I think you should tuck away and, 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 and maybe reflect on this week. Here's his conclusion. If people want to maximize happiness and minimize stress, who doesn't? They should build a life that requires fewer decisions because that's what creates happiness and reduces stress. How do you do that? You surround yourselves with people who embody the traits they prefer. If you want to be happy, if you want your anxiety levels to drop, here's what you need to do. You need to decide what the life is that you're looking for. Decide who it is that you want to be, who God created you to be. And you start hanging around with people like that. You make deliberate choices about who you're going to dance with. Which sounds like groundbreaking research. I mean, to do this, they had wires hooked up to people's heads. But again, here's the thing. This is why we revere the writings of the authors of the scriptures as highly as we do. They didn't have any electrodes, but King Solomon, whom the scriptures revere as perhaps the wisest man to ever live, he wrote most of the book of Proverbs, this very ancient, very old book of wisdom. He draws what sounds like a very similar conclusion. Walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harms. You want to be wise? Solomon does not say what we say in Mendham, New Jersey. Well, then you need to get into the right school. You need to make sure you spend your time. Watch your extracurriculars. Now, if you want to be wise, it's simple. Hang out with smart people. Hang out with wise people. Your brain will change. And then notice the warning, friends, because relationships are so powerful. This is, what, this is the warning before we get into this any further. Relationships are so powerful, they work both ways. God meant them for good, and they've been counterfeited for evil. A companion of fools, he doesn't say just becomes a fool. He said a companion of, fool, of fools suffers harm. His life is thoroughly impacted. In fact, again, 700 B.C., this is written. He doubles down on this. He repeats it later on in the book. Do not make friends with a hot-tempered person. Do not associate with one easily angered. Why? Or you may learn their ways and get yourself ensnared. Oh, John, come on, man. That's Old Testament stuff. There's so much judgment in the Old Testament. I'm more of a New Testament grace guy. Okay, great. 
There was no greater messenger of grace than the Apostle Paul. Here's what he wrote to the church in Colossae. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts, character, corrupts good character. I, I like the do not be misled. In other words, don't be fooled into thinking it won't happen to you. Oh, this is something my kids need to worry about. I'm a full-grown man. Don't be, don't be fooled into thinking this won't matter in your life. Uh, don't believe that, well, I'd never let that happen. Don't, don't be fooled and think, well, I mean, I just, I just go along with it for now. I, I don't say anything, but I would never participate. I mean, don't, don't rely on the old, well, I would be able to separate my professional life from my personal life. Paul goes, look, you're kidding yourself. It's not behavioral. It's deeper than that. It's changing you. I, I have a friend, John Allen, some of you know, he, he's an old friend from my banking days, and um, John, we used to hang out together when we worked, and John has a stuttering problem, and uh, very slight. I never really noticed he had it until uh, I started coming home from work, and Joan would literally say to me, were you hanging out with John Allen today? I'm like, why? She goes, you're stuttering. <laughs> Hoping John's not watching this morning, actually, but John had a slight stutter, and the more I hung out with John, I started stuttering. When I was 14, 15 years old, I worked at a gas station. My language dramatically changed <laughs> at 14 and 15 years old when I worked at the gas station. So you know this, right? Ladies, you hang around with a lot of other, other, other women in town and they, they bash their husbands. Your brain changes. Men, you hang around with a lot of guys that say money's all that matters, career, power, it's all that matters. Your brain changes. We all know it. There's nothing new there. I don't know who said it, but I adopted it as a bit of a life truism. My kids heard it so much they hated it. Show me your friends, I'll show you your future. And at its core, this is not a judgmental statement. I don't know where I got it from. I couldn't even figure it out this week as I tried to Google it. And it's not about my kids' friends. See, that's what they thought. They're like, well, Dad, you're talking about my friend. That's offensive. I wasn't talking about them. I was judging my own kids. I love you, son, but you are not above being influenced by Jimmy. It's no business of mine what Jimmy does. I'm not here to judge Jimmy. I'm judging you. You're too weak. And today, as I close, here's what I'm asking of all of you. To take some time this week to judge yourself. I don't care if you want to trust Solomon or Paul or the science. Maybe you should trust all of them. But believe me, and trust that your relationships are changing you. And with that, settle deep in your heart, with you starting to go, okay, that might be true. My relationships are actually changing my brain. Then here's what I want to challenge you to do as, as we close. I want you to make two lists. New year, right? Everyone wants to start the new year. It's going to be new year, new me. I'll give you the most powerful way to change your life this year. I want you to make two lists right? Um, this is going to be more powerful than a diet, more powerful than an exercise regime. Those things are good. First list, I want you to write down your goals, short-term, intermediate-term, long-term. Friends, if you're a Christ follower this morning, I would encourage you at the top of each of those lists should be, I want to become more like Jesus. That's all of our goals, right? And then on that second list, here's what I want you to do. That second list I want you to carry around with you this week. And at the end of the day, uh, I want you from now until next Saturday, I want you to, to write down who you talked to, who you met with, 
And then I want you to add to that list everybody else that you had engagement with in any way. Phone calls, FaceTimes, emails, social media exchanges, any engagement, I want you to write them all down. And then next Saturday night, before, before you decide if it's worth coming to church, right? I'll see if there's nothing else going on. Next Saturday night, here's what I, I want you to do. I want you to put a number next to every name that corresponds with one of the goals on that other list. And then I want you to ask yourself, if the scriptures and the science are true, if I will become like my dance partner, if, if there's no way around it, if, if, I, if I look like them and think like them, based on your list, who are you becoming? Be honest with yourself. Who am I becoming? And then with that goal sheet in mind, I want to challenge you to begin to rethink who you want to fill the hours of your life with. Who do you want to give those most personal, intimate places and spaces in your life to? It's not just about who's willing to have you, right? It's about who do I, who do I look at and see that their values align with my values? Who do I look at and say, that direction of their life, where they're going, is the way I want to go? Those are the people where you need to begin to realign your time and proximity with. Show me your friends, I'll show you your future. If that sounds too crass, how about this one? Since relationships have undeniable powers, be careful with whom you spend your hours. This Sunday, in the foyer, I have hired for you a personal dance coach. Her name is Janet Klazewski. She has incredible moves. She's out there waiting for you right now. Because if you take the message seriously, and I think you should, I think what you'll discover next week is I need to start to surround myself with some more people that are going to help me become the person I was made to be in Christ. She is there to get you into those communities, into a men's group, a woman's group, a Bible study, a mentoring relationship, a community group. When you go out there, say, uh, Dr. Klozeski, I'm here to have my brainwaves checked. She'd be happy to do that for you. And so, since relationships have undeniable powers, be careful with whom you spend your hours. Write that down on your refrigerator this week because going forward, it's a lot easier to remodel good relationships than it was the, the ones that were set off to a bad start. Let's stand and close in song.